Welcome to the Deep End Beyond Deck, a podcast where visionary builders, creators, and experts discuss world-changing ideas. I'm your host, Marshall Kosloff. Let's dive in. With the Deep End, we're creating space where we skip the surface level and go in-depth into ideas that matter. I'll be your guide as we explore possible futures of commerce, higher education, art, governance, longevity, and more with some of the most exciting figures in their respective fields. Joining me in the deep end is Fadega Adebui, self-described tech optimist and creator of Cybernaut, a newsletter that explores the wide-ranging and sometimes weird communities and cultures of the internet. Like the future of work, culture and community have been unbundled from geography. Citizens of the internet are forming new cultural movements online, which gain traction early in one corner of the internet before expanding to other parts of the web. Sometimes they even spill offline into the physical world. Fideka has written some of the most interesting long form expositions on niche internet communities that are hard to understand from the outside. An example of this is the study web, which Fideka describes as a vast interconnected network of study-focused content and gathering spaces for students that spans platforms, disciplines, age groups, and countries. In our conversation today, we dive deep into what it takes for these online cultures to emerge, opportunities for creators, Web3, whether legacy social media platforms will be able to keep up, and much, much more. Fedeka's newsletter Cybernaut is a part of the Every Writing Collective started by Nathan Bachez, an on-deck alum from the very first cohort of our Founders Fellowship. Make sure to check out our Substack for links to the many fascinating things mentioned in this episode, opportunities to attend feature live podcast recordings, and more. The URL is thedeepend.substack.com. The Deep End is produced by On Deck, where top talent goes to accelerate their ideas and careers. We hope that those who listen to the ideas on the show are inspired to build. To learn more about On Deck's programs, visit beyonddeck.com. For show notes and additional resources related to the deep end, check out ideas.beyonddeck.com. All right, let's dive in. Fideka Adigui, welcome to The Deep End. Thank you so much for having me. We are discussing the broadest topic of all time that we will then start to nail deep into because I really appreciate your writing at Every Through Cybernauts is that you're able to take this broad topic of internet culture and look through case studies, interesting bits that just come up in the general zeitgeist and using those as a real way for understanding how the internet's changing, evolving where it's been and where it's going. So let's just start here. What is internet culture in the year 2021 as a topic? What, what does internet culture mean? So I think everyone who thinks or writes about internet culture has a slightly different definition. For example, I see people say internet culture as a synonym for what Gen Z is doing online. But for me, I consider internet culture an examination of the platforms and the people on them, and also the interesting two-way dynamic where people are shaping platforms, and then platforms are also shaping people. I'm glad you brought up Gen Z to start, because the other obvious question is, who exactly shapes internet culture? I'm a millennial, 1992, not a cusper, I'm firmly towards the end stage, but definitely not Gen Z. Am I no longer shaping internet culture? I think that Gen Z is certainly at the forefront and they are the ones who are, uh, they're the ones setting trends and the platforms are very much listening to them. But I think internet culture is broader. So for example, I consider internet culture uh, boomers on Facebook, or it's people with disabilities who are congregating on platforms like Second Life that nobody uses anymore. That's really helpful. So let's actually look at those two examples. Let's start with Second Life. So what is slash was Second Life? And how is there an interesting use case of how a specific community of people, aka in this example, the disabled, how are they reimagining this what very 2006 thing. I last saw it in an episode of The Office. There's a scene where, where <laughs> Dwight, Dwight and Jim create characters, but that's always from 2006. So let's start there. What's going on? 
So Second Life is not a game. It's actually a virtual world where people could create avatars and really live and build a life virtually. So that includes uh, having a job. It includes building a home and being a part of a community. So this platform is no longer very popular. Um, I don't hear very much about it. But a few years ago, Wired released a really interesting article about how people with disabilities are kind of finding their way around that platform as a way to regain some of the aspects of their lives that they've lost. So people who are wheelchair bound are in Second Life hiking around and uh, really kind of reminiscing about kind of the previous life they once had. What's interesting about that is you're looking at a platform that had one core audience, AKA everybody that was generally the idea and has now found itself. I think the percentage number was 70 to 80% focused in the disabled community. Mm. So when you're looking at platforms, how much of these user adoption bits are organic, AKA the platform says, Hey, we're going to create a space where people are going to want to use it this way. But then you have something else entirely happen. Like for example, I don't see 2006 second life being so focused in this deep of a community. So I just love your thoughts on how that works. I think it really varies from platform to platform. So I think that a lot of uh, social media sites specifically take their cues from users. So if users are uh, using features in a particular way, they're going to lean into that. I think Second Life is a case where a platform is on the verge of death and there's only a handful of users who are sticking around. So that one's quite unique. But in general, I think that platforms um, are generally listening to uh, the users on the site and uh, taking their cues from that. Yeah. So something I'm wondering here, because you made reference to boomers and Facebook is how platforms evolve. And you actually did an interesting piece about something called eCircle that was speaking to this idea of how do social media platforms evolve and how, if at all, do they die? So when you're thinking of a platform like Facebook, it's very much not 2006 to 2012 anymore. How do you think generations tend to shift through platforms, if at all? Yeah, I think what you'll hear if you speak to someone in Gen Z is Facebook is dead and even Instagram is dead. And I think that there's been a strong hold on Facebook of boomers. So the cohort of people using Facebook now is quite a bit older. They're using it in ways that uh, younger generations are not really using the internet anymore. And I think that Facebook has recognized that. So in the last little while, it's been announced that Facebook is courting creators. Uh, creator economy is kind of the word of the day right now. And I think that Facebook is very aware that they're losing that war against platforms like TikTok uh, and even Clubhouse. So they are doing what they can to really catch up on a stronghold that they've lost with creators and really trying to attract uh, writers and um, videographers and influencers in general to the platform and you know to the tune of $1 billion. Uh, if it works, uh, is remains to be seen, but it's interesting that uh, I think that they've recognized that they've uh, lost a stronghold and they're really trying to regain it. I've got two different directions I want to go with this first one. So the obvious question to ask you as a newsletter writer mm -hmm. is what would Facebook have to do to bring you onto the platform? Because from my perspective, it probably just isn't purely a question of money. Platforms are really interesting here. So for example, you write with Every. Every started on Substack. Then mm -hmm. you all went independent to your own site with your own process. So just putting on your I'm an actual creator hat for a second, what are you looking for when it comes to a platform trying to recruit you to participate? Well, my arrangement with Every is a little more than a platform. So Every is a writer's collective and they provide a lot of support, both financially, editorially, to really help me put my work out into the world. So I don't envision a platform like Facebook being able to provide that support. 
What I do think that Facebook could perhaps provide and probably what their sales pitch is to independent writers is distribution. So uh, perhaps being boosted in the algorithm in some way and showing up on news feeds or, you know, providing just some mechanism for uh, writers to have their writing found. So I think that is likely what Facebook's value proposition is, uh, but it's not something that would necessarily make me move over there compared to the support I have with every. Distribution is really interesting because I mean, that's actually a really good articulation of also what Twitter is doing with their own newsletter project, newsletter product, especially if you're someone who has a huge Twitter following. There could be a million different ways you could tie that all together. How do you think of distribution as someone who's in this quasi independent state? Because you basically imply that something that every camp provide to the same degree as a massive multi-billion dollar platform is just getting eyeballs in front of things. How do you think of eyeballs? Distribution is definitely a bit of a black box. So I've been fortunate enough to have quite of my quite a few of my pieces do well. So that could be retweets from prominent people. It could be featured on the front page of Packer News. Um, it could do well organically through my own Twitter, through a select you know amount of words that I strung together that happened to work. But um, I definitely think that distribution is one of the harder things that is. Uh, tough to crack for creators. And um, it's interesting to see bigger platforms really center that as their value proposition and see whether writers will be attracted to that. This is the second part of the question about Facebook. In your articulation of what Facebook is trying to do, it seems clear that you're delineating this obvious case of let's evolve. Users behave differently. It's no longer about Facebook events it's no longer about the way that we spent our time on Facebook in 2008 or 2012 or even 2014. The platform evolves. Do the social media platforms that just die, the MySpaces, the eCircles, even the Second Lives, does it basically come down to the fact that they didn't evolve past that initial use case? Like, How would you think about the comparison I'm setting up there? Yeah, I think that's a tough one. And I really can't think of a social media platform that has been around for an extremely extended period of time. Um, so I think it really is a natural cycle and evolution where uh, people move on to different trends. And I think a company like Facebook, for example, it's very hard to evolve just because of their scale. Um, it's very hard to pivot and do something new and follow a trend, even if you want to, just because of the massive you know, amount of debt there is in terms of product and um, competing priorities. So I think that's where uh, startups have a definite advantage, where they can move a lot more quickly, um, they can respond to user requests a lot quicker and uh, be observant of trends and actually be able to keep up with them. Can you speak a bit about trends and how they form online semi, but also not completely organically. So if I think back to vague memories of the 1990s or early 2000s, I would think mm -hmm. of, hey, a song by a prominent artist is now in the top 40. It's playing on the radio. So it's the trendy song and maybe it was in a Super Bowl commercial and now it's just out there. It seems pretty direct, but now you have songs blowing up on TikTok. Um, we'll get to the study web in a second, but I really loved your example of how Super Mario Kart on the Wii, I believe, there's this yes. random song that's great study music that starts trending. Before we get into those case studies specifically then, I think I just did a decent job of articulating how trends worked pre, let's say, 2008, pre-smartphone, pre-social mm -hmm. media. How do trends work today across all these different platforms? I think that's where largely Gen Z comes in. So on platforms like TikTok, things spread so quickly. So they have a giant user base and uh, a really interesting algorithm that is not based on uh, your friends or who you follow. So there's just a greater level of virality on platforms like TikTok compared to other websites where there is the friend circle like Facebook or Instagram. So a song from Doja Cat can become the biggest thing uh, because a few people featured it in a TikTok and it catches on. And 
I think TikTok has also done a really fantastic job of making themselves very cross-platform where you can download a TikTok and it can have a second life on a platform like Twitter. And it's just network effects all the way down and uh, things are really allowed to spread very quickly in that manner. It's funny, speaking of downloading, we were just talking for a second before we started about the Packy episode, we just made the reference to Quibi not allowing folks right. to download or share or put things out there exactly. at all. So if you're just seeing an interesting case of how if you want things to trend, there has to be a degree of ability to leave a platform. I, I think of Reels, Instagram slash Facebook's TikTok mm -hmm. competitor. A lot of the Reels are repurposed TikToks. Exactly. And that's a situation where both Facebook and TikTok are probably okay with that in the sense that Facebook needs the relevant thing to be on Reels mm -hmm. and TikTok gets a little advertisement for TikTok. And I find myself thinking as a millennial boomer, oh man, I probably should be on TikTok and not watching this on Reels. <laughs> so how do, you, how do you think of the platforms think of each other from a time spent on app perspective? How, how do they think about the scenario that I'm just describing there? Well. I am not sure how platforms are thinking about it individually, but I do think they should be thinking about it more like TikTok, where you have this content that's interesting and engaging and you allow multiple ways to upload, download and share it versus a platform like Twitter, for example, where there are a lot of great, you know, interesting tweets and people screenshot them and share them on Instagram. But that is not a feature that Twitter has natively, that you can download a tweet and make it into an image and spread it. And I think that would be a mechanism for Twitter to grow. But I think that they have, you know, the opposite perspective, in which case they want their platform, they want their content to stay on the platform versus being uh, spread throughout other channels that aren't associated with them. Something I'm wondering about, and this goes back to your articulation of Second Life, mentioning that episode of The Office with Jim and Dwight. Mm -hmm. In that episode, the key feature is that their Second Life characters look just like them yes. and are them just with a quick upgrade. So Jim has a guitar, guitar <laughs> on his back. Yeah, we've been clearly watching The Office during quarantine. <laughs> quick peacock shout out. The only time you're going to hear that on this, uh, on, <laughs> on this podcast. But it's, it, it's, it's them. It's not anonymous. And something you've written about is this idea of increasing interest and desire for anonymity online. And this is just a trend that I have a hard time mm. wrapping my head around. I get it. I get it, but I also don't get it. I get it in the sense that people have finstas, right? So you're, fi you're fake Instagram because you don't want your parents, your teacher, your friends to see what you're putting out that you want to keep it close. On the other hand, people like to be famous. That's why you have people who are putting out tweet thread after tweet thread after tweet thread right. designed to go viral and to blow them up. The whole joke is on the internet. Everyone's going to have 15 minutes of fame. So how do we balance these two competing instincts? Because I just feel as if everyone could see a case for both. Yeah, totally. So I think currently the personal and the professional is very intertwined. And for some people, there's an underlying anxiety that what they say could threaten their livelihood in some way. So, or perhaps just more important, there's an audience and what you say is attached to your personal social capital. So I think both of these things have a bit of a chilling effect where people don't wanna say what they think and they're looking for different outlets to express themselves. And I think that's where things like anonymity or even pseudonymity comes in and people are, you know, navigating their way into alt accounts to really, you know, express themselves and what they think in a way that's a little more freeing. A takeaway I'm getting here is that maybe this isn't an either or situation. I like your actual delineation of you have a personal identity, but you also have a professional identity. So professionally, I want to promote this podcast and you want to promote Cybernaut. So mm -hmm. we're not going to do that pseudonymously right. because to a certain degree, Neither we are very much- yeah, rather for the benefit, there's a degree of people like us, so they want to read our stuff and so on and so on and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. But it's actually possible that in other aspects of our lives, we'll want to have a different social aspect there. That's actually very helpful to think about. So my next question then would be, to what degree do you see platforms leaning in 
to either desire. So for example, to what degree do you see platforms evolving within the professional space? Part one. And then part two would be, to what degree are platforms making it feasible to be truly pseudonymous? Because, you know, I, like most people, have had vague thoughts of having an alt Twitter, but it feels super annoying. I don't trust that it's actually going to be entirely safe. I have to put in a phone number. Obviously, I could put in a burner, burner phone number, but I'm not actually doing anything bad. So that seems a little right. try hard. <laughs> how, how, so let's actually do, let's do that in reverse order. How, how are platforms making it possible, if at all possible, to be pseudonymous or anonymous? I really don't think they are at all. So I think that's where something like decentralization and crypto comes into play. So currently, I don't think that you can trust that if you uh, set up a linked account on Instagram or Twitter that um, it would be completely anonymous. Um, even if, you know, certain employees at those companies don't know who you are, um, I think the algorithm does and has, you know, some notion of your IP address and that the fact that these two things are linked, which isn't a huge risk for, I think, the average person. I think the average person simply wants to maybe express themselves a little differently versus saying anything truly controversial. Um, but I do think that uh, unless platforms really lean into being actually decentralized, then they're, they're really not uh, enabling anyone to be anonymous or pseudonymous on their platforms. And what about the professional side? You also had a good piece about LinkedIn. LinkedIn is LinkedIn is interesting because it's something you don't think about, but then you remember that it's huge. So how do, how do you place LinkedIn within this broader conversation on platforms and professionalism and all that stuff? Yeah, I think if, you know, being decentralized is one end of the, uh, the spectrum, then LinkedIn is on the entirely opposite end where you're displaying your name, your uh, places where you've worked before, where you live, and it's very professional and tied directly to uh, where you work. So um, what I wanted to explore with the piece that I wrote about the subject was the idea that everyone talks about LinkedIn and finds it to be a very bizarre platform, but um, hasn't dove into specifically why it's so strange. So the specific features that are very social for a professional environment that create some cognitive dissonance. So I just think the platform has a pretty big identity crisis. Um, I think they are also in the spot of losing relevancy and gripping and trying to find ways to keep it. So they're looking at TikTok and saying, they have that, let's do that as well. So I popped into LinkedIn the other day and they now have a feature where you can uh, upload a video and you know explain your story, whatever that means, I have no idea. But uh, the platform is definitely a strange mishmash of uh, products that a lot of the time don't make sense. Let's actually go into that for a second, because when you said that LinkedIn is strange, I understand what you're saying emotionally. I log in on my phone. I'm like, this is kind of weird. But what when you're thinking, when you're writing that piece, like what were your examples of the way that all these mismatched products have come together to create an experience that's honestly kind of strange? What, what would those examples be? Yeah. So... For example, they have a lot of features that, like I mentioned, they've taken from other social networks. So for example, there are LinkedIn stories. Uh, if you go into LinkedIn mobile, you can upload a story like you would on Instagram or uh, elsewhere on the internet, which is a, a rather strange feature to have like this ephemeral uh, story uh, on a professional network. It doesn't quite fit. Um, another example of that is their uh, name pronunciation feature, which I think is very well intended. Uh, lots of people, myself included, have names that are challenging to pronounce. Um, but I've just seen people use the feature in completely bizarre ways where they're providing a full sales pitch <laughs> of their um, of their profile or so interesting. They're trolling with it entirely and kind of making fun of the feature. So um, I think it's an idea that had good intent behind it, but uh, the execution is entirely wrong. So why then does LinkedIn endure? I'm sure a big conversation piece in tech circles is usually the idea of bundling and unbundling products. So I'm sure you and a lot of our listeners have heard people say it's time to unbundle LinkedIn because you have all these features 
thrown together. You have all these communities thrown together. I'm not particularly sure it's necessary for me to see friends from high school and college who are in recruiting or accounting on the same part of my feed when I see people from on deck or someone like you at every. Why do you think that unbundling doesn't happen? And why, despite all the strangeness we're discussing, the platform endures, even if it doesn't quite reach its full potential? Mm -hmm. Well, I do think it has been unbundled in some ways. So if LinkedIn is a platform to show off your work and really lean into your professional side, uh, there are platforms like that that are uh, more individual and uh, specific to people's disciplines. So for example, designers have Dribbble and developers have uh, GitHub. So I think there has been some level of unbundling that's occurred. But I do think that LinkedIn persists because they're one of the larger platforms. And I think there's an underlying professional anxiety of you need to be on here. You There's a just-in-case feeling that, you know, if something happens, um, my profile is here. I can still get contacted by recruiters. Um, I can still apply for roles. So I do think that one of the reasons that LinkedIn persists is just because of its size and scale and the underlying uh, professional anxiety that a lot of people have. That is the perfect pivot to a discussion about a type of behavior and culture that's promoted on platforms, whether it's LinkedIn or Clubhouse, and that's hustle culture, mm -hmm. which you wrote about in the context of Clubhouse. But I'm also just interested along a generational direction because it's very clear to me that hustle culture is not in. It is It is not fashionable. It is cringe. It's chuggy, if that's even the correct <laughs> pronunciation. There's so many fun words that come up when we just think of that idea of hustle culture. So here's what I would love to do. I'd love to hear, and we could break this up into bits. Firstly, why is hustle culture no longer fashionable? What happened when it comes to trends in these spaces and the actual people and the generations? What made that feel very millennial 2014? That's basically what I think of as peak hustle culture. Yeah, absolutely. I think that is when perhaps Gary Vaynerchuk was at his most popular. He's like a big purveyor of uh, hustle culture. And I think that's in decline because I think there's been a backlash towards the idea that uh, life should be only work. And there is a growing movement towards the idea of work-life balance or work-life integration. So I think hustle culture legitimately offends a lot of people. And that's why it's fallen out of favor. And if you go across these platforms, um, there's a lot of people making fun of hustle culture. But regardless, I think it still very much persists. So there are a lot of people across platforms like Clubhouse, like TikTok, like LinkedIn, that are promoting the idea of, you know, work hard, play hard, um, the idea that you know you need to get up at 5 a.m. and hustle, and um, you need to take these particular steps to you know be a millionaire. And I think another part of it that's off-putting for a lot of people is it's very scammy. So underlying hustle culture is the idea that if you just do these things A, B, C, D, um, you're going to become a millionaire. And generally, that's not quite how it works. And I think it offends people's sensibilities. That's really interesting. Just, I, I, th I think another thing in this category. I, I don't mean this from a, I mean I mean this very directly. The, this very people also then joke about the like girl boss trend. How there was a very mm -hmm. like 2014, 2015, 2016, um, forward facing bit, but it also feels cringe today. And I'm curious if you have any thoughts on because once again, it's it, it, it's a fat. I think that falling out is more interesting than the hustle culture falling out one because the hustle culture one is really just obvious, right? It, mm -hmm. it, it was kind of awkward even at the time. You think about it for two seconds and you realize, okay, wait, wait a second. This, 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 and that reason. But why did hashtag girl boss culture also at a branding level? So not, so I'm not talking about feminism. I'm not talking about right. all the actual issues there are in the workplace and life. I just mean mm. a very specific type of internet culture and method of forward facing presentation. I think Girl Boss had perhaps an overexposure problem. So 
it was a book, it was a movement, it was a Netflix show. And I think it fell out of favor because it essentially was just a recreation of what people felt are, you know, toxic work environments. So the underlying message was essentially uh, you can also be, you know, an abusive boss, but just a woman, (laughs) which isn't a compelling uh, message for a lot of people. So I think people really just saw Girl Boss as uh, just kind of part two of a culture that they already were not a fan of. What's so interesting and ties together your articulation of the failure of hustle culture and hashtag girl boss is that it doesn't seem like either trend was able to move to something deeper. And it seems like people are looking for something deeper. So what are you hustling towards? If you're just hustling towards being a millionaire, not only is that kind of superficial, but it also doesn't it leads, like you said, to a lot of people doing scammy things. And if all hashtag girl boss means, like you said, is you too can rule a toxic workplace, that's also missing something. So are there any trends now that those are clearly not the things, at least at the forward facing, you're not getting a best-selling book doing either thing right now. Are there any movements towards something deeper that you're seeing inkling of or that there's talk of? Yeah, absolutely. I think in light of COVID and this uh, move to remote work, we're seeing a lot of conversation about uh, distributed uh, workplaces. We're seeing lots of conversations around uh, four-day work weeks. So I think there is a pervasive feeling of burnout that was happening before the pandemic, but has really been ignited by the pandemic. And I think people are looking for ways to balance uh, work and life more effectively and are looking towards workplaces that um, are inhibiting that and kind of asking for change in those aspects. And how do you think workplaces have responded to that? So something I'm thinking of, there was the big open letter that went out of early career investment bankers who've had, and once again, insert the various obvious statement that if you are a 20-something investment banker from a pure material resources, you're at the tippy top in all of human history. That's not the point I'm making. But just everyone's always basically known that investment banking is a horrible work-life balance Mm -hmm. lifestyle. It's not conducive to what most of us would define as health fulfillment, those bits, especially towards the top. Why do you think you're now seeing open letters and more and more backlash in a way that doesn't seem like that would have been the degree before? Because obviously in 2009, I'm sure there were plenty of first-year investment bankers who would have a huge issue. You're suggesting that when it comes to this broader conversation, just the year of remote work in these strange industries has really played a huge role in that. So I'd just like to hear your articulation of that. Well, the role that I think remote work specifically has played is that I think people have proven that remote work can be effective. People have been at home for, you know, 18 months now and have been producing at the same level or higher than they previously were. So I think when uh, uh, workplaces are asking people to come back, people are having second thoughts and thinking, hey, I've been doing um, all my work, I've been doing it effectively, while also, you know, skipping the commute and having time to hang out with my kids. Uh, You're asking me to, you know, add back that one hour commute, and the answer is no. So I think there's been a huge backlash to uh, office culture and the idea that culture can only happen, you know, downtown, um, far away from where you might live. This is good. You're doing a really great job of setting me up to pivot to a bunch of different topics because a quick shout out to your writing. I love how, once again, you're in this broad space, but you're actually covering a lot of broad topics. Let's talk about the study web then, because this is also a very COVID era phenomenon that has to do with students. So can you explain what the study web is and then what the broader significance to this conversation on internet culture is? So I'm a few years removed from university, but when 
I was in school, one of the larger things on the internet um, around studying was something like Khan Academy and videos that were quite instructional. Um, what I'm observing now with StudyWeb is something that's more communal. So StudyWeb is a constellation of online platforms where students are finding uh, inspiration, they're trading test tips, and they're also really talking about their academic anxieties. So it includes platforms like TikTok and Discord and Twitter and Reddit. And uh, some of these have existed for a long time. So I know study tumblers have been around since around 2014. But with the pandemic and Zoom school, uh, we're seeing study web really expand and more students join. So for example, I spoke with the founder of a Discord group called Study Together. And before the pandemic, they had around 500 members. And currently, they're over 150,000. And these are students from all around the world. There's a heavy president. There's a heavy presence in Indonesia, in India, um, throughout the United States. And uh, students are just finding really interesting and innovative ways to stay motivated during a time that's really challenging. So I've hopped into a few discords where people are studying face-to-face. -face. They have their cameras on with complete strangers just to stay motivated. And, um, you know, those are the mechanisms that students are using during a time that it's really challenging to be in school and, you know, sit on a Zoom call for five hours and have that be your education, what you might have imagined dorm life and a really exciting period of your life. Yeah, so could you give the background story of the example I referenced earlier with the Mario Kart song blowing up? Because you set it up so you're like, why did a video game single from 2008 on a defunct platform, the Wii, blow up? With this? So what's how does this play into the study web context? Like I mentioned, study web is a bunch of different platforms, including TikTok. So with that particular Wii song that blew up, it was posted on TikTok and it went from, you know, just a very small video, not a lot of views um, on just a very small uh, YouTube account to getting, you know, tens and thousands of views per day of students who are finding it on TikTok and using it to study uh, to a 10 hour loop. So that is, you know, marathon study sessions, marathon essay writing sessions. And TikTok has just been a very powerful platform for study web because uh, you can visit hashtags like study talk and really see uh, other students who are struggling. You can see tips from people who are, you know, a few years ahead of you or people who have graduated. And it's a very uh, inspirational community that I think people are leaning on while they're feeling, you know, a little dejected about school and finding ways to stay motivated. You know, what's interesting here that I'm hearing is so much of internet culture in 2000s, early 2010s was so broad, but also applies to media too, right? So if we were having this conversation in 2012, you wouldn't be writing a newsletter that you've bundled together with people. You'd probably right. be at BuzzFeed talking about how your stock options would be worth a trillion dollars someday. <laughs> Not RIP, but that quite isn't how things turned out. We'll do an episode on that at some point. But it seems like today, everything we're hitting on is just nicher and nicher and nicher and more and more focused rather than being broad. So that obviously makes sense on the newsletter side, right? So you're trying to attract a specific audience of folks who are deeply interested in you or interested in your topic. You're not trying to get necessarily a million clicks Mm -hmm. that don't convert to a deeper relationship. How are people beyond just the newsletter and media business thinking of, if at all, this idea of focusing in on an audience rather than just being the biggest thing for everyone? I think it's definitely something that a lot of platforms are thinking about. I think that there's a popular maxim in marketing. Like if you are speaking to everyone, you're speaking to nobody. So I think that is directly related to what we're seeing now. We're seeing very niche newsletters that um, a few years ago you might laugh at, but they have huge followings and um, a really dedicated and loyal audience. And I think platforms are really thinking about ways to encourage those people and um, allow them to you know, come to the forefront. So 
Um, I think TikTok has done a really great job of that. Uh, TikTok has a bunch of very unlikely creators. There's a lot of people on uh, TikTok who are blue collar workers and they are, uh, their accounts are dedicated to pool cleaning. And that's something that people just find really satisfying and interesting to watch for whatever reason. But a few years ago, I don't think anyone would have guessed that someone cleaning pools on TikTok would have you know, millions of followers. So I think it's really about uh, platforms enabling individuals to really do their thing and providing enough flexibility that allows them to attract a really specific niche audience if that's what they wanna do. Something I'm really curious about, especially in the broader antitrust monopoly conversation you're seeing in the US, Europe, even China to a certain degree, is this idea of social platforms having monopolies on spaces. Mm -hmm. And a concern that I tend to have is the conversation seems in many ways to be stuck in 2012 to 2016, where Facebook is this behemoth who can make major acquisitions, Instagram. WhatsApp, Oculus is hardware, but it's related in just in the sense that people think the path to social or just commercial domination is joining a big platform. But at the same time, sitting here today, you have obviously Clubhouse, Twitter, Facebook, et cetera, either try to acquire or launch their own competitors. You have TikTok giving Facebook more of a run for its money in the vertical that it's actually in. How what would you say is the story of social media today when it comes to, and I don't mean competition in the political sense, but I mean competition in the sense of, is Facebook just the end-all be-all? Is Twitter the end-all be-all? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How would you just define the story if you were to tell it to somebody? That's an interesting question. I don't even think Facebook thinks they're the be-all end-all. So I think that they are recognizing the ways that they've fallen behind and trying to remedy that. But I think we're kind of in a new social media renaissance. I think we're seeing the pop-up of a lot of interesting platforms, whether that's focused on audio, whether that's focused on being ephemeral, uh, whether that's focused on writing. Um, I think we're just seeing uh, a wider set of social platforms than we have seen in recent years. And I think that's going to continue. I think people are looking for new and interesting ways to connect online. And Facebook might be a part of that. Twitter might be a part of that and still be part of the arsenal of tools that people use to express themselves. But I think we're going to continue to see more uh, differentiated platforms like Dispo that is, you know, competing with something like Instagram or is complementary to something like Instagram. Um, so I think it's a really exciting time for uh, social networks. And um, I don't think that um, Facebook or Twitter is preventing any new players in the space. Something I'm curious about, what do you think, and you could answer this personally and then extrapolate to your audience. How many social slash communications apps do you think one person, one user is going to have on their phone? I have, I don't go onto Facebook on my phone, but I use Instagram. I use Signal. I got added to a Telegram chat and it's annoying because I see those two as competing. <laughs> so I don't open my Telegram messages right. as much as I should. Apologies to those who have not received responses. But then I'm also on Twitter and I have Slack, which is its own Social network in a way. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Especially if you're in multiple workplaces. So what do you think the actual, what's your social spread? That be, I think that's actually an interesting question. And then how do you think the average user is going to think about something? Oh, and, then I have, and then I have Clubhouse, of course, too. But Clubhouse became competitive with, with Twitter. And then honestly, with podcasting and with my Audible app. So how do you just think about the ecosystem on someone's phone home screen? I write an internet culture newsletter, so I don't know if I'm representative of the average person. So I'm on quite a few. Like I am on Reddit, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Dispo, I'm on Clubhouse, I'm on TikTok. Um, I spend a lot of time across a bunch of social networks. But for the average person, I think they cycle through a handful. And I think you can actually have quite a few and kind of use them based on you know your mood and um, what's happening. So. I know a lot of people who might not, you know, go on Instagram each day, but they'll pop in and uh, check back. So I think that the wide array of platforms uh, give people options and choices. And I think people have their favorites, but um, 
daily active users might not be the, I guess, right metric for companies to use in a time where people are popping in, you know, once a week, twice a week. So going back to our earlier conversation around bundling and unbundling, it seems to me that if we're to look at the social media space in 2013, 2014, basically right after Google Plus flames out, you have a situation where Facebook and Twitter in some respects have just built this ecosystem that can serve everyone well enough. And then what we then see from around 2015 to 2016 on is you see new user behaviors that, or even desires that new startups, different feature sets can actually serve in different forms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we could define this then as the unbundling of 2014 social media. Do you see all these different features maybe getting bundled together again, or is that just not how the space works? So is there not someone who could say, hey, like, wait a second, Marshall's right. There is just your social audio app, and then there is just this, 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 and that. Maybe we put this all together. How do you think about that? Or is that just, or is that missing the point of what's happening to the space? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think we see this unbundling and bundling in a lot of different spaces. We see it throughout media. We see it in tech. Um, I'm not quite sure that we're going to see it in social. Like, I think at this point we're fully unbundled and I can't especially envision a bunch of uh, platforms either joining or a new platform attempting to, you know, bring all these disparate uh, portions of the internet back together. So for the last section here, I want to talk about what you've most recently written about, which is the parasocial relationships that develop between creators, users, and how that goes back and forth. If we're to talk about what social media really provides for people, especially in a 20th century media context, is that it's two-way communication. This isn't just a receive mode thing. How do you, can you just explain the piece? Because I think I, I I understand the concept, but I never really heard or seen it expl explicated that way. So I think that's a great unpacking case study for everyone. The term parasocial relationship was coined in 1956. And back then it was used to refer to more traditional uh, people in uh, media. So people on TV, uh, stage actors, uh, TV stars, and that has really evolved in the last few decades. So we've seen the rise of reality television. And I think that really allowed people to have more intimate bonds with the people they were seeing on the screen because we were provided more access to them and felt more close to them. So there were shows like The Simple Life or Keeping Up with the Kardashians that are very personality driven versus um, competition driven. And that really allowed people to um, form these kind of bonds with uh, the people on the screen. And in the rise of the internet influencer and online creators, I think we're seeing that uh, phenomenon just uh, really magnified. Um, and I think that's largely because many of the social platforms that these creators are on allow for more two-way interaction between a creator and a fan. So on Twitch, for example, you can, um, you know, speak with your favorite creator through the live chat. Um, on TikTok, a creator can stitch um, a video that a fan makes and really, you know, uh, speak with them through that uh, feature. So I think we're increasingly seeing the lines blurred between uh, followers and creators. And in some ways that can be a good thing for a creator. Um, it builds a sense of loyalty and that means that you'll have more followers and more engagement and um, you'll be able to promote to someone more easily what you wanna sell. But in other ways it can be dangerous. So we see creators who have uh, fans come to their homes and mm. uh, feel it's appropriate to cross that boundary because they feel that boundary is porous and that they've connected online. Um, so it's a really interesting phenomenon. And um, I'm very curious to see how social media platforms kind of reckon with that in the future as we see um, some of the harms really unfold. So for my last question then, do you think that the nature of these two-way relationships changes 
either the type of person who could become famous to succeed in this space, or it is going to cause old dogs to have to learn new tricks. So for example, think of your 1970s you know, movie movie star who is standoffish in person and doesn't want to sign autographs. And that's their thing. And that's part of the mystique. But that to me seems to be not great. But on the other hand, you have, you know, Justin Bieber going viral, having to explain to people that they can't just literally stand in front of his house in a way that I'm not quite sure people would have felt comfortable doing pre- 2010s internet. So just can you comment on just like how actual creators are thinking about this? I'm sure you have a bunch of people who say, man, I really don't want to respond, but I need to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's an interesting question about who can now become famous if that is a requirement. If this intimacy is baked into being a creator, does that, you know, um, block out certain people? I think the answer is yes. I think there are some people who are um, more interested in staying private and are unwilling or unable to play this particular game. But at the same time, I think it's a bit of a slow creep. So when you're starting off as a creator, someone responds to you and you have a quick interaction. I don't think that feels very threatening. It doesn't feel um, like too much of a burden. And I think that can just slowly build up over time without you even recognizing it. And suddenly you have all these parasocial relationships with people you don't know. Um, so I I think a lot of creators are uh, recognizing this dynamic and trying to step away from it a little, a little bit because it can build a lot of pressure and anxiety to, you know, constantly be sharing about your life, constantly be uploading. And I think it leads to um, a specific uh, kind of creator burnout that leaves creators uh, not wanting to, you know, do the job anymore. That's uh, excellent. Not excellent that creators are actually going through something, but I think that's a great summation of that. So, you know, we're, we're, we're at the end here, but um, where should where should folks find you? Where's your Cameo uh, account? Where 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 are you on Twitter? You know, like where where are you? Uh, it'd be great for to give people some breadcrumbs to follow. Yeah, if you are interested in internet culture at all, uh, please subscribe to my newsletter, Cybernaut. You can find it on uh, every.to slash Cybernaut. And I am excited about um, what's coming up on the newsletter. And yeah, please subscribe. Great. Thank you so much for joining. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for joining us in the deep end. If you enjoyed your stay, give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this episode with your friends and colleagues to help grow the show with us. We've also got show notes and more episodes available at ideas.beyonddeck.com. See you next time.